The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, I do not know where to start with this one. And I mean, in a good way. It's just there. there's too much to talk well, about. Well, I really. know where you're going with this because our, our guest is Molly McGlynn. She's born in Canada. She's a writer. She's a director. She now lives in L.A. and is uh, quasi-famous, like all the Canadians there. She's made a number of films. She's written for some big TV shows uh, like Grace and Frankie, um, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin. They're going to be on the podcast someday, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> uh, she wrote for The Wonder Years. She's won all sorts of prizes. Her first feature, Mary Goes Round, was about substance abuse and an estranged dad. But, you know, it, it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a funny way. Uh, so Molly's latest feature, Fitting In, it was originally called Bloody Hell, uh, is about a teenage girl who's played by dance phenom Maddie Ziegler, uh, who goes through or actually would like to go through the usual teen trauma of growing up and and sex and boys. But she discovers that she has a rare disorder where she has no uterus and an undeveloped vagina. Wow. I mean, it's so amazing. It's, it's based on Molly's own experience. We might talk about that. And it's called, as you mentioned, Fitting In. Get it? Uh, get, get it? it? Uh-huh. Huh? Fitting In. Um, yeah. It pre- premiered at TIFF uh, last fall, went on to win all sorts of awards, and it's going to be released in February. Now, Molly also has a podcast called Hello, My Mom is Dead. Oh, <laughs> which is about yeah there's that dark humor again well it's about losing your mom yeah. we've all lost our moms but molly lost hers when she was 21 which brings with it some additional um burdens i guess yeah so moms there's a few stories there we have some a uh, few topics today though could include but not be restricted to gender loss Growing up, obviously, sexuality, addiction, motherhood, creativity, um, and having a few laughs, because that's what it's all about. <laughs> Finding the humor at all is because you got it. Uh, so you can see where it'd be hard to start, but apparently we already have. So let's continue and welcome Molly McGlynn. Hi, Molly. Hi, Molly. Hello. I'm so excited to talk to you both. Well, okay, so you you have said uh, that you try to tell stories about women who face uncomfortable truths about their own lives and identity. So, first of all, this must be uncomfortable for you, or are you over it through telling your story? Oh, that's such a funny question, because we just released the trailer yesterday for the Canadian market, and I think I'm over it, and then I get ready to post a trailer widely and I definitely feel a little bit of uh, vulnerability surging through my body. So it comes and goes, but mostly I'm, I'm comfortable in, in the place of vulnerability and just two tiny uh, factual things. The TV credits I directed, I wish I wrote, but I directed find that really interesting right there that it's I like you'd wish you'd written it but you directed it well maybe I take that back don't most writers want to direct or or apparently it's the other way around with you you know what I I value writing and directing probably equally but some of those shows are just so great like you know Grace and Frankie yeah, sure. I wish I could have written them, but I had just as much fun directing they're them. Our so. dream, those They are our dream guests. Like they're our biggest guests from the get go. So it's kind of funny that you've been close to them 
Yeah, well, working with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, I mean, they're not coming on the podcast. I wish they were. (laughs) (laughs) So you got to meet them. You got to like, did you just like stare at them? No, but it, you know, certainly was interesting. Like my first day on set, first up in the morning was a scene between the two of them. And we blocked it and uh, started shooting it. And then I think the writer had given me a note and I was going to give a note to Jane and it was kind of this moment where it's like, well, fuck, you're <laughs> note. And it's like, you know, I can't show that, uh, that sort of sense of nerves, but I walked from video village over to her and I said, Jane, and she looked at me and she's got obviously those like piercing blue eyes. And I said, really liked that. And then gave her whatever note. And she just stared at me for like 20 seconds. And then she said, good note. Thank you. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's not the least bit intimidating. No, not at all. <laughs> so it's interesting. Like she's a little more reserved at first, but as I got to know her, she is absolutely incredible, speaks her mind. But it, it was a period where she was sort of like, okay, let's see what this director's got. <laughs> So that's, I mean, that's a, a few years back. That's how one of the ways that you started it out. Now you made a couple of movies. Uh, Fitting In is about to be released. And and we said that it's a, it's about, I mean, it's a movie about a vagina. I can't even I believe that somebody made a movie. So no wonder you're feeling vulnerable about it going out there. It's your story. Can you tell us about, it's called MKRH syndrome, a longer name than that. But can you tell us what this is? Yeah, it's called, actually, it's MRKH syndrome. It's officially called Meyer-Rokitansky-Kusterhauser syndrome, which is named a gynecological reproductive condition named after the four male doctors who, quote unquote, discovered it, which says a lot about the medical system and reproductive health and how the patriarchy uh, intersects with that. But it's actually about one in 5,000 births. So it's not actually as rare as people think. It's not that uncommon. No, those numbers are sort of akin to naturally having red hair. So it's so interesting, like, you know, and it could actually be more frequent than that. But if you think globally, you know, these numbers may not be reported. So yeah, I was diagnosed with that when I was 16. And it was the first time I heard about it when I was diagnosed. But essentially, the long and short of it was I hadn't gotten my period at 16 and sort of, you know, had boobs and had gone through puberty and felt like something was up. And it was that journey was my leap from my New Jersey Italian basement pediatrician named Dr. Frenda. I was thrust out of his uh, doctor's office and um, was referred to a gynecologist and a series of tests, etc. So Yeah, it's a condition basically that affects your reproductive organs. So I was born without a uterus, cervix, and a shortened vaginal canal, which means that I will never have my period. Although I do ovulate and have functioning eggs, I won't carry a child, which is also developing because they're starting to do uterine transplants. And then uh, having penetrative sex was something that was... A whole, a whole bag of worms and required, uh, quote unquote, medical intervention. So there's a few ways of going about it. Uh, it. You can sort of use 
manual therapy, which is using these dilators, which are basically medical dildos. What, to make you bigger? (laughs) (laughs) That's my band name, the medical dildos. (laughs) I would like to uh, sing back up in your hand. And then some people can go a surgical route as well. And then there's also the option of not, you know, doing anything, which is totally fine as well. But it's interesting. Like I, I used dilators quite soon when I was 16, but I didn't know at that point what kind of sex I wanted to be having or with who. And you're basically just handed a box of these medical dildos and being told to make a vagina. And that was such a dangerous point in my adolescence development because I internalized that I was a problem to be fixed. I was basically told that my main function was to be a vessel for presumably a man or a penis and how that becomes internalized and basically affected how I operated it in the world thinking that I was this broken woman and my main job was to accommodate presumably a man and then I would feel normal. So men also became vessels to confirm my normalcy versus being men. And this is all when you're 16, like life isn't complicated enough when you're 16. Oh my God. Yeah. And my parents had split up and you know, my mom was recovering from breast cancer, which she later passed away from. So, you know, I always say like, prior to this diagnosis, when I was starting to go through puberty, my mom was losing her breast. And I, you know, a woman's body was always a bomb waiting to go off as a spot. And then I felt that way about my own diagnosis. Wow, that is, but both Wendy and I are breast cancer survivors and uh, I can, and lost our mothers, but later, actually within two weeks of each other, but so much, so much that, I mean, the fact that you're looking at your body and I, I do too, is as a bomb waiting to go off. Uh, our bodies are not ourselves. <laughs> they really aren't. I'm so sorry you went through all this and yet you have managed to make this a fascinating story. What else are you going to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to make it funny? Because, I mean, the movie that you made before was about alcoholism and the estranged dad. and uh, But it was also funny. Like, is that you or is that us? <laughs> no, I think that's me. I mean, I have a very um, dark sense of humor. I'm, I was raised in a large Irish Catholic family. I'm the youngest of five girls. My parents and my sisters were all born in Ireland. I spent a lot of time there growing up. And that's, you know, the Irish say the best party of your life you won't be at because it's your wake, you know, and like, that's kind of the tone that I was raised in. And the approach to dealing with suffering and tragedy is through, I would say, art and also humor. And I, yeah, I personally have survived through humor. My friend, Marty Van Dyke, who's in our industry as well, she always, you know, says that like humor is a life raft. Um, and you just have to cling on to it. But even though that's my natural leaning in terms of my work with this film fitting in, because it's about reproductive conditions and vaginas and we're going to the gynecologist and all this stuff, like those are horrifying words to sort of pitch, try to get financing, you know, put in front of audiences. So humor was a way for me to draw people in and sort of disarm them. I'm also aware of like the immense amount of privilege I have and had through my experience being diagnosed as 
an upper middle class white girl in New Jersey at the time. There is just so much privilege to my story. And while it was and is emotionally devastating, I'm still a healthy person. And I don't take that lightly. It's just we're all in these little meat sacks we drag around and some bodies do this and some do that. And like, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know, you just have to have a sense of humor about it, at least from my perspective. There's just so, so much pain and suffering and just horrifically dark things going on that um, I just felt like a touch of humor felt appropriate here. It's funny because we wanted to ask you the, the the question, which is quite fraught these days, which is what is a woman? That is an interesting topic, obviously. But but well, gender had gen, gender had to play into the way you decided to approach this. I mean, people must ask you, are you intersex or it, I mean, now we know a little bit more. Sorry, Wendy, I'm just grabbing the steering wheel, but um we know a lot more, I think most of us are a little more enlightened about gender, but it does, this has to factor in. If you don't have the, what is considered the correct equipment, then, and you have to fix it, that becomes a really loaded proposition. That's such an interesting question. And I will point out to listeners who may not know, intersex is a term that um, historically really used to be associated with hermaphroditism which, you know, we all have these images in our head about like the bearded woman and sort of monstrous genitalia and all these sort of terrifying things. But the first time I heard that MRKH to some falls under that umbrella was when I was writing the script in my 30s. I'm a well-educated woman and somehow... I missed this information about how MRKH may be intersex or not. It's very contentious within the community. Some people feel fiercely protective of their identity as a female and that this is strictly a physiological problem. Other people would identify as intersex, which means simply non-normative reproductive parts. That is a very, very loose term. And once I understood what that was, I looked at it a lot differently. I had to unpack my own internalized phobias as it relates to sort of the strict binary system of gender. You know, having MRKH, and I explore this in the film, really sort of tries to ask the questions like, if a woman doesn't bleed, if she can't, be a mother in a sort of traditional way. And if sex does not come with a potential pregnancy, therefore may only be for pleasure. What is that? It, you know, where does that fit into this idea of being a woman, which is so heavily um, affected by cultural and societal norms? In terms of the intersex label, I am still working that out. It's so interesting. Like I what I am is just this thing that's a both and it's this and it's that and it's not that. I'm not offended if someone wants to categorize me as intersex. I'm not offended if they say I'm not for me because I'm okay just like I am what I am. I think there's an obsession, especially now and the age of social media with identifying as this, that, and the other. And while I will say 
that development is so positive for so many people. I, I think we should be careful with overly clinging to labels that we give ourselves or society or culture puts on ourselves. There's a flexibility with all of our identities. It's a lot messier than checking boxes or saying clear, concise statements about ourselves. So I'm more interested in the gray, messy space than I am the binary. I love the gray, and I love that you've been able to make this movie, and uh, and I love that, I mean, there's so much talk these days about media and polarization and hate and how everybody hates, but, but then there's also this freedom to make the kind of movie that you've made and to say, I am not just a body part. I am not just this. So it's, uh, I, I think it's kind of cool. I don't have all the answers. Nobody, nobody does, but it's, I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, you say that body parts are given way too much significance. Um, but then there's a joke in there. Nobody does. <laughs> Some people think they do. The women of ill repute. What happens when people, well-meaning, and I might be one of them, go, oh, well, I mean, it's clear you're you're so feminine and you're so pretty. You must be a woman. Um, and I'm sure you get that. And I'm sure you hear that. And and not just for me awkwardly saying it right now. <laughs> no, I'm like, oh, I was talking about But there is that need. It's not like people are deciding. It's like that need to say, but I don't understand. You know, even understanding what's cisgendered. I mean, I'm still explaining that to my husband, bless him. What does that mean? Uh, and that's a very good question. What does it mean? Well, it means you were born. But then my my son, uh, both Wendy and I have 25-year-olds who are, know everything. Uh, so it's really helpful. <laughs> you know, explains much of what you just said. And, and maybe if we just stop trying to categorize according to gender, it would be all a lot easier. And yet we have to. And medically, I guess you have to. You know, it's so interesting sort of presenting feminine to other people. And I, I certainly do, but unrelated to MRKH or any of this, like I kind of feel the most attractive and in my skin when I'm like in blunt stones and baggy jeans and like a hoodie and I'm doing what I love and I'm on set or I'm, you know, that's where I feel comfortable. And that's not an overly, quote unquote, feminine presenting way to be. There's an amazing book that just came out by there's uh, a woman named Alicia Weigel. She's an intersex activist from Texas. And she testified in the Texas Capitol years ago. And she came out as intersex when Texas was trying to, uh, it was all the sort of bathroom legislation. It's just incredible. Alicia is a very attractive, blonde, blue-eyed person. And you could almost see the look on the, the these men's faces when they realized someone who they probably were attracted to was saying, I actually am other, I am intersex. And I was born with undescended testes and sort of just the shock to their system. Like, you know, how someone presents is, you know, it's all performance. It's all drag. Like it's, we're signifying something to the world. But I just, I love Alicia's book. I really encourage anyone to read it. What's it called? It's called Inverse Cowgirl, which is incredible. 
<laughs> cowgirl. Yeah, that's, that's Maureen's favorite cowgirl. <laughs> well, not my favorite position necessarily, <laughs> but especially <laughs> in verse. But. <laughs> but she's sort of just this interesting shapeshifter who can jump between spaces in a way that really surprises people. And why not? I mean, that's, I mean, I, I, I know someone who is intersex, who was born many, many years ago. Uh, and before this person was born, she identifies as a she, but intersex. And before that, I didn't really have an understanding of what intersex was. And, and I certainly had never heard of, I'm hoping I'm getting this right, MRKH syndrome. Uh, and that it's one in 5,000. Like that's, there's a lot of people who are, there's a lot of people and you're making a movie and you're saying, hey, let's not be ashamed of this. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it is. Tell us about, uh, so Maddie Ziegler, who's a phenom in her own right. So if you don't, if you're not familiar with her, I knew her from the CF videos. She's a child dancer and, and, uh, and now apparently accomplished actress. I've not seen her. We have not seen the film, by the way. We should mention that. It comes out February 2nd in the no, that's okay. All right, we'll be there for that, and this will coincide with the with the 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 uh, release. Um, tell tell us about finding Maddie and 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 casting her because I know that you were delighted with her. I I absolutely was. Um, she actually William Morris, my agency, called me one day and said, "Have you thought about Maddie Ziegler?" And I was like. You know, see, like I had the same sort of associations. And my first thought was, she's far too beautiful. I was like, I was not looking like that when I was a teenager, you know, looking on her Instagram. But he said, just meet her. I think you'll be really surprised. And we had coffee and she had like wet hair and Converse on and ordered a cookie. And I found that really endearing and unexpected from sort of this young, beautiful woman in Hollywood. And man, she's got soul. Like, she is grounded. She is in her body. She tells a thousand stories in her eyes. And for me, that's it. Like it was her first leading role. She was in a film called The Fallout about a school shooting that the Canadian director Megan Park directed. That is a great film. And I had watched her in there. She was kind of a co-lead supporting character. So it was like a big kind of leap of faith to give this young woman who I just met my life story. And I'm going to do it once. About my vagina. Oh, my God. Yeah, just it's a small commitment. (laughs) Yeah. But the thing that really got me is, um, you know, she grew up on this reality show called Dance Moms. I never really seen it. But she is someone who understands a complex relationship with your body as a dancer. She knows what it's like to push yourself to the brink. She has been a performer her whole life. Um, and sort of how that psychology has influenced her identity in the world was really interesting to me because I thought of my own performance as trying to be a woman who fits in normally. And I needed someone who could convey intense, conflicting emotions with little dialogue in, in parts and who better than a dancer to do that. And if you look up any of her dancing, it's just breathtaking and she is brave. She is fearless. She jumped in. She was not scared. I cannot express how difficult it is for, I think she was 18 when we shot this film, for her to put herself in that position vulnerably, both emotionally, 
physically and sort of how we shot it. It is not an easy thing to do, but watching her in this role has healed parts of myself. I didn't know needed to be healed. She is professional, polite, kind. I mean, I cannot say enough good things about her. I think she will have a long career and she's just a dear friend of mine. Speaking about things that, that need to be fixed or, or you need to come to terms with, I, I was really struck. I, maybe I'm changing the topic because I'm talking about your podcast, which is about your mom. But your mom was with you when you got the diagnosis at, at 16. And you say that she burst into tears. Was that, was that because she had an idea of women? Or, or how, like, how, did, how, did you, how did you come to terms with, with all of that? It's <laughs> yeah, so my mom was raised in like lower middle class family and sort of working class outskirts of Dublin. And, you know, she was raised in a culture and a time where a nun from her high school called my grandparents and said, breeding is very, very smart and she needs to go to college and breeding breeding. Yeah. It's Gaelic wow. for frigid, but my grandparents who were wonderful people said, we can't do that. We're sending our oldest son to seminary school. So all the money I mean, that in Ireland was like having a priest was the ultimate symbol of sort of success. And so my mom did not go to college. She went on a boat to London in the 60s to become a secretary and was sending part of her paycheck back to her parents to pay for her brother's seminary school. So this is the context of my mother's identity as a young woman in the world. She, you know, then had five daughters with my father, emigrated, had breast cancer, obviously. But when I was diagnosed, I didn't understand any of these words or what was going on. It was so much so fast. And I could barely speak, but she burst into tears. And that was such a crucial moment because her grief in the moment said everything I needed to know, which was, this is a devastating loss. And it was in ways that I couldn't comprehend. Emily Hampshire plays the role of the mother in the film, who is different from my mother in a lot of ways and not. My mom... Uh, only had a high school education until after her divorce. She went to night school. She got her undergrad. She got her master's. She became a therapist. And, you know, Emily's character is sort of like this very bad therapist. My mom was certainly not a bad therapist, but it drove me up the wall. She kept asking. My mother was always asking me how I felt, how it felt to my body. And I just wanted to punch a wall. Like, I didn't want to talk about any of this. And in the scene of the diagnosis in the film... Emily is sort of over the top, kind of unraveling, and Maddie is saying nothing. And so many times with the script, I got notes of, this is not believable. Why is this mother making it all about herself? Why is the teenager not talking? It's like, I don't know who your moms were, but like, <laughs> it's not unfathomable to think that a mother would take on this emotional bomb for her daughter in a way that she can't comprehend. So I was very strong in my ways that this is how the, the scene had to be shot. Well, maybe you'll get a, a uterus made for you. Maybe you'll carry a baby, but you've made a couple of films. It's kind of great. I mean, is that, first of all, is that something that you want? Well, first of all, I had heard a few years ago that sort of, I don't know in what woo-woo 
practice, but that's the official word, right? Yeah. The uterus is where a woman's sort of creative life force come from. And I remember hearing that and being like, well, if that's true, I have replaced it with my, my work, you know, I'm not sure where I stand on wanting to have children. I froze my eggs in the pandemic. I had so many of them, which is tragically ironic. Like the doctor was like, for someone your age, you have the eggs of like a 19 year old. I'm like, nowhere to put them. Wow. So you got lots of time to figure it out. Yeah. But again, you know, it's not for everybody. I I would say probably half of my friends and family do not have children for whatever reasons. It's not it's not for everybody. I mean, I have two. I'm really glad I did and do. But you're not defined by your uterus as you are such an example of your, you know, we are not our bodies. We're so much more than that. So unless I and if you want it, apparently it's not out of the question. True, true, true. There's many ways to be a mother. Mother is a verb in my eyes. And I, I feel like I try to bring that energy to many sectors of my life. And it's so funny, even with directing, people are like, oh, it's a very like traditionally masculine role. You're a leader, you're you're the boss, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, you're just a mother to this project, to the script, to all these people. I have to, when I'm shooting a film, not only do I have to take care of the actors. I have to, I I like to take care of the crew, make sure that their needs are being met. They have what they need. That is my version of directing. I think people think it's yelling and pointing at things very lightly. (laughs) And doing that thing with your, the the camera. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Certainly I probably point at things and um, ask for something loudly, but uh, there's just a, a different, softer way, in my opinion, to get respect and, and trust from people. The uh, the movie, you changed the name. Bloody Hell was just what was too graphic or too messy or. Yeah, it's not, it's something to do with the freaking algorithms and the robot computer. When if it's on streaming, it can get lumped in with horror right. films and then I'm going to get a lot of angry people. So. You don't want it being pitched as a horror film. <laughs> no, I, it was a good decision. <laughs> we did a test screening in September, packed Cineplex, like hundreds of people seeing a rough cut of the film. I think, I mean, there was these two guys leaving with hunting jackets on. I don't know what they thought they were watching. And oh. I just found that so funny because maybe they thought it was a horror film. They probably did. I love that. But they I got love- an education, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> They sure did. Uh, it is out in February, and uh, geez, we're out of. Normally, Wendy says this, but we we are out of time. Molly, what a what a pleasure has been to talk to you, and we wish you well. What are you doing next? What are you doing now? Can you tell us? I'm working on a rom com in quotes called "Feck the Wedding," <laughs> the American couple trying to uh, get married in Ireland. Oh, oh I made there's a link. I was wondering what the yeah. personal aspect was, but there's, there's a, there's well, a it's link. Funny. My fiance was like, can I read the first 10 pages? And I'm like, sure. In my mind, I was like, I'm going to write a, a kind of big budget studio comedy. And he read it and goes, oh, it's about a sad woman again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. A sad woman, but with funny parts, right? <laughs> we just need to get it on paper and then I'll punch it up. But yeah. Uh, yeah, they're, you know, dead mother in Ireland and, you know, all that. So um, there's a bit of me in there, but I'm working on that. I'm 
going back to direct a TV show for Fox in Vancouver in January now that the strike is over. So getting back to work. When are you getting married? Or is that just, who knows? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Who knows? You know, we're doing it in Ireland, then we're eloping, then we're going to go to Mexico. We're all over the place. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I think All Over the Place is uh, the title of a new movie. And I, 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 I think it's it's great that you've made a movie about a vagina. So I, I it, it's great. Or lack yeah. thereof. We or be. like, well, she has one. It's just, uh, or she has yeah. 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 Anyway, it's not, it's not, it's not about that. Yeah. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Molly. Yeah, Thank you, Molly. Thank you. Can't wait to hear it. So are you going to get all woo-woo? What, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. It's all, yeah, well, I don't want to get too woo-woo. You know what? That's funny about na- names for vaginas, right? Woo is one of them. Oh, I thought it was a hoo-hoo. No, that's a hoo-ha. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to be making vagina jokes, you know. <laughs> We've just had this very serious conversation. No, it wasn't that serious. <laughs> it's funny the names that people come up for, like, you know, cl- Clamburger or, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's called a vulva. <laughs> like the actual names, like vagina and vulva and all that are the most unsexy names there are. It's, I don't know, maybe it's me, but it's just not something you you shout out in the moment. <laughs> I had to consider getting a hysterectomy or an oophorectomy when I had the breast. And I was like, who came up with all these words? These are ridiculous. Well, it's interesting. Hystera is Latin for uterus. So when a woman or anybody is hysterical, it means that they're, you know, responding from their uterus. Well, that explains everything. (laughs) Well, it's so patriarchal. It's like, oh, don't be hysterical. Don't be so womanly, you know, equating the two. But uh Anyway, that was really, really interesting. One of the things that I found so, uh, what would the word be? It was shocking, I guess, is how common yeah. this- One um, in 5,000? MRKH, one in five, like same thing, same number uh, of possibilities of being a, a redhead. Imagine having both. <laughs> <laughs> what are you suggesting? That, that a red vagina, no, a short no, vagina is a- the combination <laughs> be like, don't I have enough to deal with? <laughs> <laughs> and freckles. Anyway, and uh, there, freckles. there must be something. Anyway, I just, uh, I, I love that she w- has been able to make a funny movie about an undeveloped vagina, and I, and it's you yeah. know. Well, it's not just about, it's about the person yeah, who well, has it. To me, it's about um, a vagina. You know, it's, I've, I've got to see it. I've got to see it. No, she's, yeah. she's great. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled. So how do, how do you feel being a mom? I feel I feel that Molly McGlynn can do whatever she wants, and I'm a fan. And I'm just going to mention once again, the movie is called Fitting In, Not Bloody Hell. Uh, or it says, I think the poster says Fitting In is Bloody Hell. So, you know. Not I a think, horror movie. Uh, not a horror Well, in its own way. Uh, and uh, it's being released in February. We'll have the details on our website if you want to check that out. Okay? Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. 
Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.